Morning, everybody. Please do sit down. And uh, let me ask you to uh, turn back to page 763 in the Bible, page 763, where you'll find Joel chapter 3. As Maddie said, we've been working our way through the book of Joel for the last couple of weeks. I hope you'll be able to catch up with where we've got to if you've not been with us. But uh, in essence, there have been two big days in Joel. There's been the day of the locusts, the day of terrible destruction uh, endured by God's people. And we've seen that that was pointing forward to an even bigger and more terrible day, the day of the Lord. And that's our focus this morning. So we've read from the first part of the chapter. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help uh, as we read the remainder of the chapter and think about it all together. Our Father, we want to thank you that you are the mighty God who reigns, who is just, and who will hold every act of evil in our world to account one day. Thank you that you care about injustice and inhumanity and the terrible things that people do to one another for personal and corporate and national advance. And we pray that you would help us to share your heart as we study your word. We would see injustice for what it is. But we pray too uh, that you would open our eyes to see what a wonderful savior you are so that we might know more fully the security that is available to all who trust in the Lord Jesus. And we pray it for his name's sake. Amen. I'm going to read. Um, I'll start back at verse 16 again, down to the end of chapter 3 of Joel. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. I'm hoping you'll keep those challenging words open in front of you. There's also on the back of the notice sheet you were given as you uh, came in an outline of where we're going over the next few moments together. It might be a help to you uh, to have it in front of you. Uh, You probably know the famous old story about a group of men who came across an an elephant in a dark room, but none of them knew what it was, and so they all went about their investigations to try and compare their findings, and one touched the leg, the story goes, and said, ah, this animal's like a a tree trunk. Uh, Second touches the stomach and said, no, it's not a tree trunk, it's, it's more of a wall or a door, 
the third gets the ear and says it's really strong, it moves, it's like a fan. Fourth gets the tail, it's a rope. Then the fifth gets the tusks and says, no, this is a, there's a couple of spears that are going on here. And the sixth thinks that the trunk is a mighty snake. And in most versions of the story, what happens is that the six men have a big row and they fail to resolve their differences. And lots of people use the story to say that right there is the problem with all religion and anybody who claims to have a knowledge of the truth. Everybody thinks they have the truth, but in reality, they've only got a little piece of it. And if only they could open their eyes, if only someone could switch the the light on, they would see that their tiny perspective is just that, and that the world isn't quite as simple and narrow as they suggest. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if someone even here this morning thinks that. Certainly, you'll have friends who, who state very confidently and without a hint of irony that all claims to absolute truth are outdated and obnoxious and dangerous. And so we're encouraged to, to think that all spiritual ideas can only ever be human opinion. They can't be objective fact. And so it comes as a real shock to us when we come across something like the book of Joel that we've been looking at these last few weeks. The explicit claim of this ancient text is that these words give us God's perspective on reality, not just someone fumbling around in the dark trying to make their best effort, but God himself speaking to tell us what really is. The very first words of the the book set the tone. The word of the Lord that came to Joel. So the claim is that Joel isn't just another guy in a dark room, but that God has turned on the lights. God has given him a full picture. And here in chapter 3, we get, therefore, God's authoritative announcement about the future of our world. That's got to change the way that we interact with these words this morning. They're not just a historical text. They're not just a statement of what some people believe. The claim is that they are divinely, a divinely authored statement of reality. And you'll see um, from the points on the sheet that the text gives us two parts of this announcement, two things that God is going to do in the future. Joel's aim in recording them is to make us want to return to the Lord. That's been his big aim throughout his book. He wants us to return to the Lord with all of our heart. He wants us personally to experience the mercy and grace of God and so be safe in him. Those two points on the sheet then, and first, which is the longer of the two points, the Lord will roar in the valley of decision. Uh, I'm taking the language from verse 16. You'll see it there. The Lord is pictured as as a mighty lion. I don't know when you think of God, which images come to mind. He's not a mouse. Here is a mighty lion. And in verse 16, he roars with such ferocity that heaven and earth quake and tremble before him. But the initial announcement is up in verse 2, and it tells us both the location and the reason for the Lord's furious roar. 
So up in verse 2, he says, uh, I will gather all of the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I'll enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they've scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and cast lots for my people and traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So um, Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. And uh, this valley of Jehoshaphat is the center of the action this morning. Verse 14 calls it the the valley of decision. But it's not because the nations are being gathered together so that they can make a decision about what they think of God. Rather, they're being summoned to hear God's verdict, God's decision about them. And the verdict comes in two parts. The first is historical and, and particular. It's an announcement of judgment against Israel's local enemies in the Old Testament, and then it spreads to all of the nations, but we'll think of them in turn. Uh, and it's clear in verses 4 to 8 that God's people have been on the, the receiving end of some terrible brutality from the nations around them. Just glance your eyes over it, you'll get that flavor again. There are five verbs in verses 2 and 3 that tell the story. They've been scattered, divided, uh, cast lots, traded, sold. Uh, And then on in verses 5 and 6, there are three more. The the people of Tyre and Sidon, their allies, the Philistines, have taken treasure from God's temple. They've carried the people away. They've sold them into slavery. It's a reference to 586 BC when the the Babylonian army ransacked Jerusalem and some of the surrounding neighbors uh, exploited the situation by just going on a looting campaign in Judah, selling her refugees into slavery in far-off lands. And presumably, those local nations thought it was just, this is dog-eat-dog, this is what nations do, it's the survival of the fittest, it's just risk-free profiteering from their point of view. You kick your neighbor when he's down and nick all of his stuff if you can. But they seem to have forgotten who they're dealing with. Uh, Seven times in these few verses, God uses the word my to say that the people of Israel aren't just any nation. They belong to the Lord. And so the nations reckon that they're picking a fight that they can't lose with people. And what they're really doing is picking a fight that they could never win with God himself. And it's worth just seeing their behavior for what it is. Uh, Job presents it as being deeply anti-human. Um, lots, great to have lots of visiting children in church today to join with our own children. We know, like all human beings, made in God's image. They're a, they're a gift from Him. And when they're just little, they're a, they're a picture, aren't they, of, of helplessness and dependence. And here the nations are going, oh, there's a little boy, that's great. We'll just sell him to make enough money so that we can go and use a prostitute. And here's a little girl, that's fine. We'll just trade her so that we can go and have a glass of wine in a bar somewhere. What's a glass of wine? Eight, ten pounds these days? We'll just do that to the children of Israel. But as well as being anti-human, the, the behavior of the nations is, um, if I can put it this way, anti-redemption as well. You may know the history that God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt and given them a land. Now the nations are driving God's saved people from the land and putting them back into slavery. So it's anti-human. 
It's anti-redemption. That makes it anti-God. And so in verse 4, God announces his response. And if you glance at verse 4, you'll see that his judgment is going to be swift and speedy. He says, if you do think you're paying me back, I'm going to return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. And as you glance on to verse 8, you'll see that it's retributive and fair as well, in the sense that what God's going to do to them is what they have done to others. And so it's announced, this is going to happen, says God. And anyone who's ever read the Bible won't be surprised to know that as God says, so indeed it happened. I don't know how your history of the ancient Middle East is. Um, 343 BC, Artaxerxes conquered and enslaved Sidon, just as God had said he would. 322 BC, Alexander the Great takes Tyre and sells 30,000 of its residents into slavery. Because that's what happens when the Lord roars from Zion. Every act of evil is held to account. And then at that point, the, the camera zooms out a, a little bit. We've had this specific historical situation. Now it becomes eternal and universal in verses 9 to 16. We're still thinking about God's verdict on humanity, but we've gone from the general to, uh, from the specific to everybody. So verse 9, God says, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. It's a truly global summons. All of the nations are called to arms. And everybody seems as conscripted. The mighty men are up at the front of the queue, but the weak are needed too. Women to go round the hospital beds and dig out the wounded. If you've got a pulse, you're in. Your country needs you. And then every possible resource is pressed into service as well. And many of us love that picture in Isaiah of the new creation where swords are beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks as the end of violence and warfare is promised and instead there's going to be perfect peace. Here the, the wording is similar but flipped on its head. Uh, run into your garden shed, grab your fork, grab your spade. You're going to need weaponry and they'll have to do uh, then there's a, a total of, of 15 commands between verses 9 and 14. And when they're read aloud, you may notice they, they, they make this poem feel all jolty and staccato. It's almost like you can hear an army marching to war as you go through the text. And then the tension rises further because now God receives his own summons. Bring down your warriors Oh, Lord. So we're, we're set for a grand battle now. All the nations on one side, God on the other. We're thinking Hastings, we're thinking Waterloo. The, the, the troops are lined up. But in the end, there is no fight, weirdly. There is just a verdict. 
verse 12, let the nations stir themselves up and come down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is what's going to happen there. I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So let's just take in the scene for a moment. Here in one part of the, the valley, uh, as all the nations are summoned, we'll, we'll have the Babylonian Empire, I guess, over here. Somewhere else you'll find the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Probably the navy of the British Empire. Not sure how they make it into a valley, but they're the British Empire over there somewhere. You've got the vast forces of the American military might. You've got Vladimir Putin and his Russian war machine. You've got the forces of China. Here are the, the Saudis with all of their wealth and influence. You've got the, the princes of capitalism. You've got the generals of socialism. All of these great empires and ideologies gathered before the Lord with all of their weaponry and power. And none of it's used because when the Lord roars from Zion, even the mightiest will fall silent and be left powerless. And it is a devastating sight, isn't it? It's hard for us to process emotionally. The, the Lord commands his heavenly army to execute a harvest of perfect justice. So he says in verse 13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So the valley of decision becomes a center of destruction. And all of these nations who have opposed God are trampled underfoot. Uh, we're sometimes told that oh, this is just the God of the Old Testament. The, the God of the New is much softer. Don't believe that for a second. Uh, Jesus himself speaks of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. There's a really sobering verse in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where we're told on the day of judgment, blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle when the Lord roars from Zion. Because God will act one day against every act of evil and inhumanity that there's ever been in our world and against every moment of rebellion that there has ever been against him in the nations and in people. They are very sobering words, and they, they give the lie, I think, to what I suspect is the, the most attractive heresy that's ever been taught in the name of God's church. You'll have met it in one guise or another. It just says simply, when it comes to, to judgment, you don't need to worry about it too much because everything will be all right in the end. There really won't be a judgment. 
Uh, you meet it sometimes in, in very blatant forms from, uh, you know, someone, a book or a theology lecture or a celebrity preacher. They say something like God's grace to the world in Jesus is just so big. It's so inclusive. It's impossible to think that God would ever actually judge and condemn anyone. It's just the, the church's version of the bereavement card that says, oh, don't worry. They've gone to a better place. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter how you live. It'll all be okay in the end. There's a more subtle version. Um, some might be thinking that the, the battle imagery and language made me think of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the story of, I don't know, is it Emmeth or Emmet? I can't remember which way you're meant to say it, but he's this Calamine soldier who's spent his whole life worshiping the, the, the god Tash, the false god, but because he's sincere in his beliefs, Aslan apparently welcomes him into his kingdom in the end. And Lewis confirmed in other writings that he really did mean what he appeared to be saying. If you're sincere, it doesn't matter which God you believe or worship, that somehow Jesus will still save you in the end. Like I say, it is an attractive thought, isn't it? There are two billion Muslims in the world. There's a billion Hindus. There's 400 million Buddhists, 16 million Jews. Much closer to home. We all have many, many people that we love dearly in our lives who make no pretense of faith in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be wonderful to believe that it'll all be okay in the end? But here is God's divinely authored announcement of the future. I can just ask you, what do you think Joel would say to us if we were trying to cling on to that hope? Did he think that everything would be okay in the end, no matter what you believe, no matter how you live? Or did he think that when the Lord roars from Zion, there is going to be a reckoning? And you need to be ready. So the question then is, what hope is there? How is it that we could possibly be safe on that day? And I hope with all my heart that you know personally that there is a way. And that God has provided it. And it's the subject of our second point this morning. The Lord himself is a refuge to his people. To anyone who trusts in him. And we've had a lot of weighty reality and judgment in Joel. And this is the good news that we really need as the book closes. Let's read again from verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people. He is a stronghold to the people of Israel. And the contrast is just breathtaking, isn't it? You've got the whole cosmos quaking, multitudes facing the, the wrath. I was thinking of the great battles, war and peace, the battle of Borodino, the Lord of the Rings, the battle of Palena Fields. But somehow here on this occasion, the camera zooms in and in the midst of the carnage, we find a place of calm and of safety. Uh, and it's not just a hiding place, it's a stronghold. 
It is a secure refuge that cannot be shaken and that will protect all who hide in it. Uh, it's a bit like the eye of a storm. I don't fully understand the, the meteorology. I'm told that right in the middle of a tropical storm, there's this place of real calm. Strong winds raging everywhere else. But in the middle, the skies are blue and everything is still. And it's like that here, because you might think that the way to be safe in Joel 3 would be to run away from the valley of decision, to flee like a, a criminal on the run from the judge. If I'm not there, I can't be punished. But it turns out that the way to be safe is not to run from God, but to run to him and to seek your refuge in him. Because if you're in him, if you're among his people, you will be safe. And you will also joy an abundance of his blessing. So verse 18, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk. All the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. A fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. It's so different to the, the devastation of the valley. The mountains dripping with sweet wine hills flowing with milk, stream beds that had dried up and had no life, now flowing with water. It's life, it's luxury, it's fertility. And Christians enjoy the beginning of that blessing, even now, in part. Um, Jesus spoke famously of the work of his Holy Spirit in the, the life of the Christian as being like rivers of living water that flow into our heart and can satisfy us so deeply as the Spirit enables us to know Jesus personally in the gospel. Satisfies us so deeply that we're told we'll never thirst again. So we know the first fruits of it now, but incredibly everything that the Spirit gives us in our life today in Christ is just the, the down payment, just the first installment. And the ultimate fulfillment of these words won't come until we're with the Lord Jesus in his new creation. Um, John talks about the, the river of the water of life in heaven, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And this river of the water of life flowing through the streets of the new Jerusalem to nourish the tree of life whose leaves will be for the healing of all of the nations as many as have trusted in Christ. And in that city, there'll be a great banquet. Um, Isaiah speaks of a feast of rich food, well-aged wine, echoing these words. And he tells us that the Lord will swallow up the veil of death and he'll wipe every tear away from the face of each one of his people forevermore. And so as Joel takes us to the valley of decision this morning. He wants us to be thinking, you know what, I want to be there hiding myself in the Lord who is a refuge. I want to be there in his new creation. I don't want to be like the nations who will know the Lord as their condemning judge, who will suffer the desolate wilderness of his justice. I want to know this Lord as my loving Lord, 
I want to enjoy his blessing forevermore. If that's you this morning, if you've never yet turned to the Lord, but you find yourself wanting that, I want to urge you to return to him and to know that security for yourselves. If there's things you don't understand, you need to talk about it, please come and grab us afterwards. We'd love to think it through with you, to work through any questions, any objections, any hesitation that there is in your heart. There is no other place of security but in the Lord himself. And for those who do know that, who have returned to the Lord, you might be wondering, how, did it, how can it happen that people like us who have evil in our hearts and deserve the wrath of the Lord come to experience his safety and blessing? How can the Lord accomplish that reversal without compromising his own justice? There's just a hint here uh, in verse 18. It gets picked up and, and developed later in the book of Zechariah. Joel speaks of a fountain that will come forth from the house of the Lord. And I put the verse from Zechariah on the sheet that says the Lord will open that fountain of forgiveness and he will cleanse us from all of our sins and uncleanness. And we should have sung, I don't think we are, William Cooper's uh, hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. And Joel would say, this is the word of the Lord. This is reality. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he gave his life so that we might be blessed with abundant life forevermore in him. And many of us would want to testify. You might like to talk about it over coffee with one another. There is nothing more liberating. And there is no more secure place in the world to be than to know that every single one of your guilty stains has been washed away and that you are safe forever in the love of Jesus Christ. But that's the reality if you've come to that fountain, if you've hidden yourself in the Lord. One final observation, just as we close. Do you see in verse 17 there where it says that Jerusalem shall be holy just a reminder, because there's a, there's a temptation sometimes when we hear all this talk of grace and forgiveness and the, the cleansing of the Lord. Maybe someone would think, that's great, I'm in. It's like having the ultimate insurance policy. It's all paid up. I can now live however I want, and God will still forgive me. It would be like the husband or wife saying, well, my spouse has promised to love me forever, so I'm going to treat them terribly. I mean, people do that. You can do that. It's not very sensible, though. And so the logic of the believer runs in the opposite direction. It says, if God is this merciful and gracious, if he loves me this much to be my rock, my fortress, my stronghold, then of course I want to love him with all of my heart. Love like this demands my soul, my life, my all. The Apostle Peter, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish 
and at peace. And I think that's where the word of the Lord that came to Joel should leave us as a church family after this month. Grateful, hugely thankful for the security and the blessing that is ours in Christ, guaranteed because of his love. And wanting to make every effort to keep short accounts with the Lord, to walk humbly before him, to make our calling and election sure. Because as Peter says, in this way, there will be richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Much food for thought there. I hope we'll be able to talk about it afterwards. But why don't I lead us as we pray? Almighty God, we do want to thank you um, that as hard as it is for us to look ahead to the day when you will judge the nations, we do want to thank you that you have provided a way for anyone and everyone to be safe on that last day, that you are a refuge and a fortress, a stronghold to all who trust in you. Thank you for the fountain of forgiveness that you opened up at the cross so that we can know that all of our wrongs, all of our inhumanity has been paid for and washed away and that we are clean in your sight. We praise you and ask you to help us to love your son and to be diligent to be found spotless on that day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a couple of songs.